beings could contemplate their existence, debate has raged among great thinkers and philosophers. Is the human creature ultimately rational, making decisions by intellect and reasoning? Or is the human creature ultimately emotional, making decisions by their guts and their feelings? This is a profoundly important question. It goes to the heart of what it means to be a human being, to our very essence. And as I reflected on that question throughout this week, a scene from a movie came to mind that I thought might shed some light on that question. So let's watch it. Many people, many film critics, think that the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan contain some of the most powerful emotional film footage ever captured. And I think I understand why. I don't think it's because of the violence and the brutality of those, those 20 minutes. I think we could feel ourselves in that landing craft. And we can't help but wonder what would motivate a person to do that, to storm the beach at Normandy. What is it inside the human being that would compel and motivate and energize such acts of heroism and bravery? And so the question, were they just stoked up on adrenaline and emotion? Or was this a rational decision they made? Well, I hope we can answer that and other questions as we open the Word of God together.
Let's pray. Father, as we're about to study the parable of the good shepherd, Jesus said that the sheep hear my voice. And it reminds me at this moment, Father, that the deep desire of my heart is not for the people of Rock Hills to hear my voice, but to hear the voice of Jesus. So, Father, please, as I so often pray, would you speak and and get me out of the way so that your word and your truth can go forth and accomplish what you desire in the lives and hearts of the people of Rock Hills. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Is this working now? All right. Thank you. All right. Good. I'll, I'll try out for the Verizon team next time. So we are in our third week of the series called Stories That Change the World. First week, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Second week, last week, we looked at what's called the treasure parables, where, where Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to priceless treasure. And this week, we're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Shepherd. And what we said at the beginning was that Jesus is most famous for speaking in parables. By the way, he spoke and taught in many different methodologies, but he's most famous and most well-known for speaking in parables. And that connects with people, because what we've learned over the last hundred years of scientists have studied communication and how people communicate. We often communicate in stories. We often store data in our brains in narrative or story form. And so stories are easy to remember. They're easy to understand. But here's the twist with Jesus. His parables were known for being mysterious and difficult to understand. Now, since he's the God of the universe, the most intelligent being that ever walked the face of this planet, you have to ask yourself, why would his parables be hard to understand? And he answered that question himself in Matthew 13. And if you missed any of this, you can go to our website and listen to the first couple weeks of the parable series or download it on your phone, either way. But a brief review is that Jesus explained these things in Matthew 13. And his, his disciples, his apostles came to him and said, we don't understand. Why are you speaking like this? And what Jesus said was, look, the Jewish culture had moved far from God. They liked to make lists of rules to follow and saw that as religion. When Jesus says no religion, faith is a matter of the heart, a heart engagement with God. And so over and over in the Old Testament, God, speaking through the prophets, said things like this to his people. Your lips profess me, but your heart is far from me. And so Jesus made the decision that he was going to speak in parables to force human beings to engage him with their heart. And with that background, we're going to look at the parable of the Good Shepherd, which is found in John chapter 10. I think we've got those verses beginning at verse 14. And this is what Jesus says, beginning at verse 14. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, 
and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I love the reaction of the people because it demonstrates exactly why Jesus taught in parables, doesn't it? Some people thinking at the purely rational level go, this guy is looney tunes. This guy is crazy. And other people trying to hear with their heart, you can, you can almost hear them, no, I think there's something here. There's something more to this. And so in this parable, there's many points we can make, but I'm just going to focus on two. One is the sheep hear the voice of Jesus. And the second is that Jesus, the good shepherd, came so that we could have life and have it to its full. So those are my two points. The first is that his sheep hear his voice. In order to understand fully this parable, you probably need to have some background on sheep. This was, Jesus was speaking in an agricultural society. And so I went back and I started to read a couple of books by a, a, an actual shepherd. He's a man named Philip Keller. He lives in South Africa, and he owned a sheep ranch for about 20 years, and he became a pastor. And he brought all that knowledge of how sheep are cared for and how, how they are treated and how they react, and he wrote books about how Jesus' parables were so applicable to our lives. And what he pointed out is this, what Jesus is trying to get at when he says the sheep hear our voice is a very common occurrence. You see, in small towns, there's often one sheep pen where they keep the sheep at night. So people who have 10, 15, 20 sheep, at night they will bring them and they will all put them in this pen that they built together, usually by stacking rocks or, or brush or something like that, to keep the sheep from, from predators. Because there's mountain lions and lions and wolves and other predators. And so the sheep fold keeps the sheep safe. But the first thing in the morning, the good shepherd wants to take his sheep out of there. Because you can imagine being occupied all night long, every night. There's a lot of dung. There's no food. All the grass has been trampled. They're eaten. So what happens the first thing in the morning is the shepherd goes to the sheep pen and calls his sheep. And Philip Keller said, you'd be amazed to watch that happen. Because when he called his sheep, only his 15 or 20 sheep would come out of the sheep pen. And when people wouldn't believe him, he'd actually bring them. He says, okay, here's how I call my sheep. He'd have other people call the sheep, and his sheep wouldn't move. But when he called them, only his sheep would respond because they heard a voice that they knew was trustworthy and loving. And what Jesus is saying here is that there is such a voice, and we need to understand this even in 21st century America. We may say, well, we're no longer an, agrar an agrarian economy. What does this mean today and now? I would suggest this is more applicable now than ever before because if you think about it, we hear thousands of voices each and every day. Think of the hundreds of voices you get on social media, whether it's in your news feed or from your friends or whatever it is. Think of the thousands, actually infinite number of voices that are on the inf internet. 
through television, through radio, through media. We are inundated by more voices than any humans who have ever walked the planet. Who do we listen to? This becomes a crucial issue, folks, because the sum total of our life, the trajectory of our life, is ultimately determined by our decisions. And those decisions are influenced by the voice that we listen to. So the decision about how you're going to spend your time. The decision about who you're going to spend your time with. What career you're going to pursue. All those things, when you sum up all those little decisions, they provide a trajectory for your life. And you need to decide, what are you going to listen to? Because some of these decisions, and I would say a lot of these decisions happen at the rational basis, right? So it's time to buy a car. Most of us are not going to go down to the Ferrari dealership and weigh the pros and cons of a $400,000 Ferrari. We, we just don't have the budget for that. So many of our decisions are strictly at the rational level. But what I want to suggest to you is that those decisions that make us most human, we really don't make at the rational level. We make at a different level. Decisions like, am I going to get married? Who am I going to marry? Am I going to have children? Because if you made that at the rational level, there'd be different outcomes. You, you understand that having kids is not rational, right? <laughs> who, who here has kids? Let's see your hands. What were you thinking? No, no I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I have a child. It's, a, it's an incredible gift of God. But it is not a rational decision. Look at the economics alone. Show of hands of how many people have their kids really contributing heavily to their family budget, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. How many, you know, when you had those kids, all the time it gave you for personal freedom, right? And so you begin to see that the truly meaningful, the truly important decisions of life can't be weighed on a scale that's strictly rational, can it? These decisions simply will not be reduced to a list of pros and cons. They cannot be. And one such decision was the decision those men made on D-Day. That was a decision of a heart. Somewhere before that moment, they made the decision that what was at stake on that day, regardless of the danger, was worthy of them risking their lives. They were lion-hearted men. And what I want to suggest to you is that's the reason why the men who stormed that beach and later got medals for bravery, they pinned that medal on his chest. It was an acknowledgement, the heart of the man that made that decision. We are ultimately creatures of the heart. And matters of faith can only be fully understood, fully decided by our hearts. You know, I've, I've been in a lot of arguments with non-believers. I try to keep them civil discussions as best I can. And, and there's, I understand, I used to be an atheist for 37 years, and so often I'll hear, well, I'm an agnostic because nobody can prove to me scientifically the existence of God. And that's true. But you cannot disprove the existence of God. There are many powerful and compelling arguments for the truth of our faith. But ultimately, 
they're not absolutely 100% scientific. So this decision has to be weighed on a different scale. One of my favorite examples of that, one of the most brilliant guys I ever knew, a guy named David Ferguson. And Dan and I ran into David and Teresa Ferguson years ago when we wanted to get training to be mentors, marriage mentors. And David and Teresa have a wonderful ministry in Austin, Texas. And what happened was, at the age of 16, he was the smartest kid in his high school, but he was a total rebel. Got tired of living at home, so he asked Teresa to marry him. At the age of 16, they got married and moved out so he could live on his own. He finished first in his high school class, got a full scholarship to University of Texas uh, at Austin, but all he had was a scholarship money, no spending money. So he moved down there his, his freshman year, left Teresa in Amarillo, where he was from, because he was living in his car by the river. So what he says was he'd, he'd go for a week, and then turn his sweatshirt inside out and go for another week. And about every two weeks, he'd do his, do his laundry. And then at the end of his freshman year, he finally gathered enough money, and Teresa had been working. They had enough money for her to move to Austin. But by then, their marriage was basically on the rocks. They were 19 years old. Married three years, marriage almost over. And her solution was, well, let's start going to church. So they started going to church, and David had one condition. I sit in the back row, and I hightail it out of there before the preacher can get to me, okay? So he's sitting in the back row week after week, and he notices that Eduardo, the, the maintenance man for the church, is sitting there in the back row reading and following along in his Bible. And after a few weeks, Eduardo comes up to David just before the, the uh, service ended and said, would you come help me Saturday? I, I have some painting I'd like to do. And David thinking, oh, I'm going to do this guy a great favor, shows up Saturday. And he's helping Eduardo, and he learns his story. He's got a fourth-grade education, grew, outside, grew up just outside of Guanajuato in a small town and made his way to America to have a better life and is a follower of Jesus. And so week after week, Eduardo always has something he needs help with and asks David. And this goes on for a few weeks, and then finally Eduardo says, David, why are you always so angry? And David had to think about that and process that. And a few weeks later, David, why are you so mean to your wife? Why don't you treat her better? And David had to process that. And after about six months, every Saturday working with Eduardo, he, David explained to me later, he said, Al, he opened his Bible. This guy with a fourth grade education from Mexico, me working on my degree in nuclear physics, and shared the truth of the gospel in a way I'd never heard before that touched my heart. And he gave his life to Jesus. And today he and Teresa have an incredible marriage, an incredible ministry in the city of Austin. You see, Eduardo built a relationship to the point where finally someone engaged David at the heart level. And he heard the voice of the good shepherd for the first time in his life. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you've heard that voice. But your, your assignment, your calling by God it's throughout the rest of your journey to try to hear the voice and know it more fully. Spend time in his word. Spend time at, at a church that preaches from his word. Spend time with other Christians so you can hear his word in, in your life. And you will begin to hear and recognize the voice of the good shepherd, just like the sheep who come out of the sheepfold.
And if you've never heard that voice or trust it, maybe, just maybe you're hearing it today. Or sometime during this service, maybe you will. Why not respond? You see, the voice of the good shepherd spoke to a guy named Peter next to the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. He came up to Peter and said, Peter, follow me. Peter dropped his nets and followed the good shepherd, just like the other 11 did, just like believers have down through 2,000 years. Today, the good shepherd is saying, follow me. Why not start today? Our second point is that Jesus said, the thief comes, this is John 10, 10, I think we have it here. The thief comes to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you have life and have it to the full. Now, again, talking in the agrarian level, the surface level, what Jesus was pointing out was something they'd all experience. There are some people who try to sneak into the sheepfold, take those sheep away and kill them so they could have the meat and the wool. The thief always came to steal and kill and destroy. But the voice of the good shepherd was trustworthy to have life and have it to its full. And the question is, you know, are we worried about rustlers in this day and age? You know, the old Western, those guys were the rustlers, right? I think there's something else Jesus is warning about. And I would suggest to you that the thieves in today's culture are the gods that this culture is offering up that are fraudulent gods. And I'll use an example from my own life. Many, many of you know a little bit about my story. I didn't go, grow up in a Christian home. We never went to church. And somewhere around the age of 12 or 13, I asked my dad if there was a God. And he just looked me right in the eye and he said no. And, and I don't remember exactly how I responded, but in looking back, I'm pretty sure what happened was at that point I said, okay, I don't have to listen for the voice of the good shepherd. I'm going to listen for other voices. And the voices that I could hear most clearly were the voices of our culture. The voices that said, if you have enough money, you're going to be happy and deeply satisfied. If you have enough beer, you're going to be happy and deeply satisfied. If you have enough relationships, physical relationships, you're going to be happy and deeply satisfied. And those were the things I pursued. But I got to the age of 37... And something was just out of whack. I didn't have any of those things. I was angry. I was depressed. I was frustrated. I was cynical. I felt hopeless. I had no real relationship left with my wife and my daughter. The, the thief had come and stolen my joy, killed my hope. And destroyed my relationships. Steal, kill, destroy. That's what thieves do. That's what the gods of our culture will do. And here's the thing, folks. The gods of our culture, they don't come at the rational level. You don't see a beer commercial that says, ladies and gentlemen, in this 12-ounce can, there's an alcoholic fluid. And if you drink that alcoholic fluid, then you're going to have a deeply rich and satisfying life. And look at all the great relationships you're going to have. The end. No. <laughs> all they show is... People partying together and they're all laughing and drinking beer and it's drink Miller Lite. And, and the image speaks to the longing of our heart. 
There's a longing that God put in our heart for relationship and joy and peace. And those images speak to it. Same way with like car commercials and families, right? Get that new car. And they always show the family and the kids are looking adoringly at the parents and the parents are smiling. And everything is great in family land because you just got that new family vehicle. We know it's a lie. It's a complete and total lie. And, but even as a believer, even as a, as a follower of Christ who follows his voice and does my best to follow his voice, I still sometimes get seduced by those, by those voices and those thieves of our culture. And I, and I tried to think how, you know, we, we all know this, right? We've all talked to people who've been in my position. We've all talked to many, many other men and women who pursued, who've been seduced by the thieves of the world, tried that way of living, and it never, ever works. You're always empty and dissatisfied. But there's this small thought that maybe, just maybe, if I get a little bit more money, or a little more things, or a few more exciting relationships, then I'm going to be satisfied. And my mind went to a guy named Stephen Baldwin. He's one of the Baldwin brothers, the actors. He made tens of millions of dollars in the movie industry. Chances are, and not for certain, but chances are he, he made more money and has more money than anyone in this room will ever have. More stuff Homes, he had homes in, in Hollywood and homes in Paris and homes in Arizona. He had the finest meals, the, the greatest delights, the, the most relationships you could ever imagine, more than any of us could ever probably have. And guess what? The thief came to steal, kill, and destroy in his life too. None of it satisfied him. But he heard a voice the voice of the good shepherd in a very unexpected way. Let's watch. My wife and I were living in Tucson, Arizona about 16 years ago almost, and through the family we hired this cleaning woman. She's working with us for about two weeks, and my wife kind of notices her singing that she does every day in her work. Eventually, after a few more days of this, went to Augusta and said, you know, I noticed your singing and um, I was just curious, you know, why is every song about Jesus? Uh, perhaps there's another tune in your repertoire, so to speak. Um, and Augusta had a very interesting reaction uh, to the question. She literally burst out laughing in my wife's face. <laughs> I just had to do that, sir. And Augusta said, you know, again, um, understand that the reason that I'm laughing is uh, you think the only reason that I'm here is to clean your house. <laughs> uh, so my wife, <laughs> she says, Honey, um, I, I, I'd like to share with you something that Augusta just told me. And I said, What's that, dear? And she said, uh, Well, she just explained to me that the real reason she's here is because in the future, you and I are going to become born-again Christians, and at some point after that, we're going to have our own ministry. And I said, really? Hmm. At that point in my career, I was making more money than I could ever wildly imagine, and just to, to hear uh, that idea vocalized at that point in time 
was utterly ridiculous. Uh, but um, that's the beginning of the journey for me. When I got to a place of willingness to just simply say to myself, okay, I'm willing to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And I'm now going to ask God to show me what that means. And I'm going to read the Bible and apply it to my life to the best of my ability to have that understanding. That's when uh, this whole experience became very, very real for me. I'm Stephen Baldwin. I am second. point to me in that testimony is somehow Augusta connected and engaged his heart and he said in his own words I became willing for the first time to listen that's why Jesus spoke in parables the Jewish people were unwilling to listen with their heart God told them over and over, you will seek me and find me if you seek me with your heart. I want to I ask you a question today. Is there a longing in your heart? A longing for joy and peace? Is there a longing for deep, satisfying relationship? Is there a longing for meaning and purpose in your life? I know there is because the God of the universe created you that way. That is what he placed in, his, in your heart. And in Ecclesiastes, the wisest man in the world, Solomon says, God placed eternity in our heart. The longing for all these deep things that the thieves of this world will never ever satisfy. The only thing that will satisfy that longing for joy and peace is the God of the universe. The only thing that will satisfy that longing for deep love and unconditional love and relationship is the God of the universe. The only thing that will give you that meaning and purpose in life like it gave Stephen Baldwin is the God of the universe. And now, the most important point of the Good Shepherd is this that what Jesus was really pointing to was what we call the gospel. Because all those things I just mentioned, all those longings you have in your heart, you cannot have them without being reconnected to God. And in order for that to happen, someone had to lay down his life. And that is the gospel, isn't it? That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, I lay down my life. That is the grand story, the grand narrative. In the beginning, we were in perfect relationship with God. Our rebellion separated us from him. But God loved us. And so he came down himself, came incarnate in the form of Jesus to go and take our punishment and to pay our debt. And the climax of that grand story, I believe the climax occurred that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus was facing a moment, something like those men in Saving Private Ryan and approaching the beach. Except 
at a scale we can't even imagine. He was facing the prospect of having the infinite wrath of the God of the universe poured out on him to pay your debt and my debt. And we can't even imagine what that must have been like. And he sat there sweating blood, and he cried out, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And there was no other way. And so with the greatest lion heart of all, the lion of the tribe of Judah, walked to the cross and died for us to reconcile us to the God, our, our Father. And, and since we're doing parables, I've been thinking, how can I say this? You've all heard the gospel. You've whole, all heard me speak it. It needs to engage the heart. How can I engage your heart? And I thought of a man who engages the heart as well as anyone I can think of in our modern culture, a man named Jason Petty. He grew up in South Central L.A., one of the most violent places you could possibly grow up. And somehow he had the heart of an artist. He was a graffiti painter, and he was a poet. And one day, as he sat in church, his mother dragged him in, into church. He said, I heard a voice that I knew was trustworthy, and I heard it in my heart. And I got lit on fire for the gospel. And Jason Petty was a hip-hop artist, and he became known as propaganda. He goes around the world sharing the gospel, preaching, but he does it in a way that I believe engages the heart. And so what we're going to do is, in just a second, we're going to look at propaganda sharing the gospel. And I want to remind you, I say this over and over, being a Christian and engaging the heart does not exclude the intellect. That's what I used to think as a non-Christian. Oh, well, you have to be, like, not even use your brain if you're going to become a Christian. No, the heart, it's like two concentric circles. This is the inner intellect, and the heart is this. The heart includes the intellect, but it's greater than, it transcends it. So when you hear Jason Petty, propaganda, share the gospel, it will engage your intellect. But I pray that it will speak to your heart. Let's listen. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand, crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told, God. Yes, God, the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept, so cold. It's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond. Creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job. An odd list of complaints. As if the system ain't working. And used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny. Our 
Yes, our sins. It's nature inherited. Black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it? And how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding besides trying to prove God is like deep in a lion, homie. It'll need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet. The problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer. An asthma, choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection. But silly us, trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe, but all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection. Good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank, but you can give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list, because even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says is part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying. It's impossible. Sin brings death. Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is someone die in your place. And that someone got to be perfect. Or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness his death functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection, we all cheered because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone, I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in him, and him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel. God, our sins, paying everyone life. Yes, yes, life. Life to the full, as Jesus promised. That's the gospel, folks. It's the greatest story ever told. My prayer is that through the gospel or somewhere else during the course of this service, you heard the voice of the good shepherd and you will choose 
to follow him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Lord, people need to hear you in their hearts. Please, Father, speak. Let the power of the Spirit come. Let the people of Rock Hills hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and follow him that they may have life and have it to the full. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think it comes as no surprise to you all that I love Rock Hills, and I love the people of Rock Hills, and so I asked if we could end today just a little bit differently. <clears throat> you see, for 2,000 years, it's been a tradition of the people of God when they gather. At the end of the worship service, there will be times when the pastor pronounces a benediction. Benediction just comes from the Latin word benedictus, which means blessing. So following 2,000 years of tradition, and the heart that I have for the people of Rock Hill is to be blessed, I wanted to pronounce a benediction today. And I'm going to take it from one of my favorite passages in Ephesians, where Paul wrote to the faith community at Ephesus, and he prayed a prayer over them. And I'm going to pray that prayer over you, and it goes like this. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And I pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.